The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We continue to study God's Word together. Two more messages from the Book of Acts the next two Sundays. Then we're going to do a uh, brief vision uh, time, First two, last two messages in August. Then in the month of September, we'll be looking at generous justice, generous justice, how to impact our community, communities for the Savior, and we'll do a new series in October. Uh, we currently have a team in Estonia, team just returned from Ukraine. We have a team that uh, is headed out to Rwanda, another team headed out to Japan, and uh, we had Gallison this week. I saw Bill and Catherine Bowers here this week, uh, who on the Arabian Peninsula as well. Uh, Nino Fincher, where are you? She just hugged my neck, where are you? Nino Fincher over here. Uh, stand up so we can see who you are. These guys also in the Arabian Peninsula, Tim and Nino Fincher. Welcome back to TBC for a Sunday. Would you welcome her as uh, she's here with us? So God is working in many places around the world through our body. Also, what you see in front of you on the screen, uh, we just had a team of junior hires return from Galveston. They took impact backyard Bible schools through Galveston, different places that were there. And uh, so that's where they have been. And uh, you have to advance it for me, that There we go. And uh, we see the team that is there, and uh, they are part of it. Can you go to the next slide for me? Uh, just a reminder, or here's a note in the bulletin. There are several things there. Bill Bowers in the Raven Peninsula uh, will be here Sunday evening, July 26th. He'll be talking about how God's at work in the midst of broken places in the middle. It should be quite interesting. Rounding third and heading to Rome was the title of this morning's message. We're in Acts 27, so Bibles are apps. We'll take a look at this section of God's Word together. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we look at the Word, I pray that you would teach us about who you are and about who we are, and that you would cause us to change. In the name of Jesus, amen. I am fascinated with shipwrecks and survival stories. Uh, it's been a fascination of mine for many years. I've read many books about shipwrecks, survival stories at sea. Maybe it's because I grew up in South Louisiana surrounded by water. Maybe it's because I spent four summers working offshore on barges and uh, oil rigs. Or maybe it's because we sat through hurricanes when I was a kid uh, in New Orleans. Several hurricanes came through when I was there. My uh, all-time memory is Hurricane Betsy. We sat in our uh, den and we watched our garage teeter and totter and finally collapsed and blow all over the neighborhood in the midst of that storm. It wasn't all bad, though. Uh, our home had a gas stove. Almost our best neighborhood had electricity. And so all the neighbors for the next three days, they didn't have electricity, they brought their food to our house to cook on the gas stove, and it was one continuous meal. So uh, obviously I enjoyed that. Uh, I've read all these books. These are books in my library on uh, survival at sea, and it's quite interesting. Uh, you probably know about some of these. Uh, the Sinking of the Essex is this book over here. Uh, the Essex was a whaling ship back in the 1800s. It's the only ship known to, be, to have been sunk by a whale that was attacking it, actually. And uh, the several sailors, eight sailors survived. They survived through cannibalism, actually. It's an interesting story. But uh, it was the genesis for uh, a book written by Herman Melville called what? Moby Dick. And so it's a, it's a fascinating story of survival at sea. My favorite is uh, this one over here. It's a story of uh, Shackleton. That's the wrong thing that came up. Uh, so this thing is all messed up, actually. Uh, the sinking of the Indianapolis is the big one over here. Uh, the Indianapolis was a World War II uh, ship. It was sunk by a Japanese torpedo. Uh, there were 1,200 men on the ship. 
Out of those 1,200, 900 survived the initial attack. Out of the 900 that entered the water, only 321 survived. Uh, the rest of them were either, well, it's a, it's a sad story. It's, a, it's the greatest shark attack in human life ever, and many of our sailors uh, lost their lives due to sharks. So interesting stories. Currently, uh, Shackleton is my favorite. Maybe it came up, didn't, I don't know. But a story of his journey, and I've read many books by that, and I've talked about it. How many of you saw the movie Unbroken in recent months? Uh, if you saw the movie but didn't read the book, you've got to get the book because the book tells the rest of the story. Uh, the movie was a great movie, but it cut off the ending. The Indian, the ending of the story tells about uh, Zamparini, Louis Zamparini, who actually survived uh, several days at sea only to be captured by the Japanese, spend much time in a, a prison of war camp. But when he came back, he was in California and uh, through PTSD and other issues became a severe alcoholic, just about lost his family and showed up at Billy Graham's first crusade in Los Angeles. There he met the Savior. His life was changed not only eternally but abundantly, and he became an outspoken proponent of the gospel and of Jesus. And until he died sometime last year in his 90s, he became a stalwart of the faith. And so it's a great story, a great read. All these are have to do with surviving at sea. What does it have to do about the Bible? Everything. Because this morning's passage is a study about Paul. Paul is shipwrecked, and he survives. It's an amazing story. It's another amazing story of survival and shipwreck as we look at it. And uh, Annette, can you advance a slide for me, please? Thank you. Uh, In Acts chapter 27, it says, all of us in the ship were 276 persons. So 276 people on the ship that Paul is on, and they all survived. But before I get ahead of myself, let's back up. Let's back up. The journey began when Paul appealed to Caesar and said, I I appeal to him. He's being, uh, Festus, the governor, wants to send him to Jerusalem to be tried on trumped up charges. And so Paul says, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. So now he's headed to Rome. He's headed to Rome. God has promised him safe passage in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And now we see chaos on the cruise that he is on. So in verses one through eight, we have the start of the journey. We have the start of the journey. Journey begins, and uh, Paul, Paul, Luke gives us kind of a manifest of who's on the ship and where they're going to be gone. There's a lot of detail here that we're not going to look at, but look at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, we, Luke's included in this, first person plural, Luke uh, has Paul on the journey, he's on the journey, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners, so Luke, Paul, some other prisoners, there's a centurion of Augustine cohort named Julius, centurion, we get the word century from, means leader of a hundred, so he's a Roman military man, over a hundred people. And then if you look at the end of verse 20, uh, verse 2, it says, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So it's Paul, Luke, uh, Julius, the centurion who's responsible for Paul's delivery, and uh, these other prisoners, as well as some salty sailors, sailors, some seasoned soldiers, and this guy named Aristarchus. What do you know about Aristarchus? Interesting guy. Actually, when you go to the scriptures, he is found in two other places. He's found in the book of Philemon, but also in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, at the end of when Paul would write these greetings and exhortations and, and thanks at the end, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And so three times in the scriptures we see Aristarchus, and each time he is there to support Paul. He's there to support Paul. 
And as I was thinking through this message and uh, studying and reflecting and praying uh, about what to speak on and, and the emphasis here, one of the things that came to my mind are, I'm grateful for the Aristarchuses in our body and in the world. Aristarchus was a guy who came alongside Paul. We all know about Paul, but hardly anybody knows this guy's name. There was a song that was popular uh, a generation ago, and it's called The Wind Beneath My Wings. Did you ever know you're my hero and everything I'd like to be? I can fly higher than an eagle because you're the wind beneath my wings. And he begins with the first verse that must have been cold in my shadow. To never have sunlight on your face. You've been content to let me shine. You've always walked a step behind. I was the one with all the glory. You were the one with all the strength. Only a face without a name. I never once heard you complain. Did you ever know you're my hero? There are a lot of Aristarchuses out there. It's quite interesting. When you look at church history, most of you have heard of Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was the great reformer. But how many of you have heard of this other guy, Philip Melanchthon? Philip Melanchthon, Martin Luther was the face of the Reformation. Philip Melanchthon was a theologian of the Reformation. And he and Luther were fast friends, and Luther was a spokesman, but Melanchthon was the man who was in the shadows who gave Luther much of his information. Many of you have heard of John Calvin. You've heard of Calvin and Calvinism, but how many of you have heard of Theodore Beza? You see, Beza was discipled by John Calvin, and he was discipled by Calvin. And while Calvin was the face of the Reformation and the author of the Reformation, a tremendous writer, Beza trained the next generations of pastors during the Reformation. And he was, a mentor, he was mentored by Calvin, but many scholars say that he exceeded Calvin in many ways because he trained up a generation to follow after him. All of us have heard of Billy Graham in our culture, our society in America, greatest evangelist perhaps in the history of the church. But how many of us know who T.W. Wilson is? T.W. Wilson and Billy Graham grew up together in Charlotte, North Carolina. They were fast friends. And when Graham began his ministry as an evangelist, he needed someone to support him, to travel with him, to help with appointments, to help with scheduling, to come alongside him. Graham didn't want to handle money. T.W. Wilson became his trusted ally. And for his entire ministry until Wilson passed away, he, he was a man who traveled with Billy Graham. Billy Graham writes this of T.W. Wilson, never has a man had a closer friend who was a greater confidant. T.W. Wilson's uh, administrative assistant for much of his life said he was a number one man content with being in a number two position so he could serve Dr. Graham and the church. So as I read these names, I, just briefly, I, it comes to my mind that I'm grateful for the Aristarchuses, people in our body, people in the church, prayer warriors, those who have gifts of mercy, who are servants to others, people like Theodore Bisa and people like Philip Melanchthon and people like T.W. Wilson, people who turn lights on and turn air conditioners on so we can be comfortable, people who come early and put communion sets together, and people who serve behind the scenes in the shadows. You see many of us on stage up here, the different pastors, but the reality of it is we're supported by so many and we're so grateful. So here's a quick application for you. Get your pins ready. Who is that friend who's come along and supported you in the shadows? Who's that person that comes alongside and holds you up? Who's that person who sharpened you, challenged you, who's kind of in the background but has been a mentor to you or one who's come alongside to love you, care for you, a dear friend? Put their name down. And this week, why don't you send them an email, send them a text, take them to coffee, take them to lunch, or, or keep their kids and send them out on a date that night. And, and, and just thank God for that person who's been in your life to come alongside you. If you've got a valued friend like that, you are indeed blessed. There are faithful men and women who sit in the shadows. As I, as I was typing these very words in my office on Friday, 
In walked one of our deacons. He came to get keys to the church van. He was headed to Houston. He was going to drive from Temple to Houston because our team from Ukraine was arriving. And so he was going to take Friday afternoon, Friday evening, drive to Houston, pick them up, drive back, all in the shadows. You know folks like that? Guys that pass out bulletins when you pick up your kids from Sunday school, why don't you thank those teachers today? Youth leaders, thank God for them. These people that stood up with these kids in New York City, it'd be a great time for them as an adult corralling this many kids in the streets of New York. Thank them for their service. So as we look at that, there's some Aristarchuses out there, people who come alongside. So we see that we see as Paul begins this uh, travel log, or as Luke begins his travel log, he talks about the participants of the journey. Then he talks about the, the path of the journey, and he goes into a whole lot of detail now. Beginning in verse 2, we embarked on the Adriatic ship, and uh, we sailed the regions along the coast. And then the next day we went to Sidon. There Paul was able to consult with friends. And then look at verse 4, from there we put out to sea, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, from there we went to Sicilia, Pamphylia, and to Myra, and then he gives all these details, every little port they did. And so the, I, the first question I had to ask is, why does Luke go into so much detail? I mean, why, why does he do it? But here's the answer, we don't know. I have no idea. He's a physician, maybe he's used to recording things, and so he's going to write all the details. Or he, he, The Jews were not a seafaring people, and he wanted them to understand that, that you know this is where we went and this is what happened. It was also a time of the year. It was a time of year of the fast. We're going to see in a second. The only mandated fast in the Old Testament was on the Day of Atonement. And if this is the year 59, which we think it is, looking at the chronology of the Scriptures, this was in October. From mid-September to mid-November, no one sailed in the open sea. You hugged the coastline because it was safer. You had missed the storms. It was more dangerous to be in the open sea. And so Luke just records for us all these details through the inspiration of the Spirit. But honestly, I have no idea why he used all these details. It's like a travel log. And so he, he records all these details. Maybe it's just for the historical accuracy, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the start of the voyage. Then we look at the storm at the sea. Beginning in verse 9, uh, it says, When considerable time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over. Day of Atonement, the fast, and this is October, nobody should be in the sea. Paul begins to admonish them now. You know, we read that, and it's clean and neat. We love Paul, and we're glad that we're followers of Jesus, and Paul was one of the greatest followers. So you think, well, it's only natural for Paul to step up. But remember, Paul is the prisoner on a ship. And you've got these salty sailors, these seasoned soldiers, and out of all the people who stand up, they invite Paul. And somehow Paul stands up, he admonishes them, and he says, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be attended with great damage and great loss, not only the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. He said, there's going to be a problem here. We're going to be wrecked and we're all going to be in distress and we're going to lose a ship. We shouldn't go right now. We shouldn't happen. In fact, there'd be some lives lost. Actually, there were no lives lost. It just shows us that even Paul's prediction here didn't come true. He's not Jesus. He He can't speak prophetically and get everything right. But it says the centurion, though, was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship. So What we have here, uh, as we begin looking at it, we've got the prediction of Paul. He says we shouldn't go, but the plan of the pilot is we need to go. We need to hug the coast. We go back to that map, the next slide, and that is the map. We're going to hug the coast, and we'll be safe. And they're headed to Phoenix, not in Arizona, but on the Isle of Crete. It's the last city you'll see on this island right in that area. And he says we're headed to Crete. That's where we're going to find ourselves in, in Phoenix. We can harbor for the winter. 
it, it'll be safe there. So the plan of the pilots there, the, there was a problem at sea, though. If you look at verses 13 through 20, they hit a hurricane. I mean, here's poor Paul. He, he's already spent two years in prison. And, and now he goes to sea, and now he, the, the, the storm comes up. And, I, I mean, you think it can't. It's like Alexander, no good, terrible, horrible, very bad day. I mean, it goes from bad to worse. So now he's at sea, and look at beginning in verse 13, a moderate south wind came up, and uh, so we took off because they needed the south wind, but before long, uh, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquilo. And when the ship caught it and could not face the wind anymore, we gave into it, and we ran to the shelter of a small island, and we hoisted up the sails, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the next day, verse 18, we began violently being tossed about in the storm. We had to jettison the cargo. The third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands, and you couldn't see the sun, you couldn't see the moon for many days, and we were assailed by the storm. I mean, this thing has gone south really quickly. I mean, they're on a ship, they're being... You ever been in a storm at sea? That's for me, I'm busy right now. You can let them know, I'll be available in a few minutes. Um, but I, if you ever been in a storm at sea, the fourth summer I worked offshore, we're coming back from our first hitch. We'd work 14, come back for seven. and the, the, We're coming back in and we're in a brand new crew boat. It's about a 100-foot crew boat that pipe and stuff in the back, and we hit a summer storm in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, the Gulf is not too turbulent, typically, unless there's a hurricane, tropical storm, tropical wave, but uh, it, th- this day it was, it, was, it was just awful. It was this brand new crew boat, and somehow we lost power. And we're like a top in the water, about t- 10 to 12 foot seas in the Gulf, which doesn't seem like much until you're down on the bottom. It looks like the whole Gulf of Mexico is pouring over your deck. I watched one of these Cajun guys. I, I don't know, I can't remember how many of us were on that crew boat, probably 20 to 30 because it was shift change. And I watched one Cajun guy, guys were getting sick, the head was overflowing, blah, blah, blah. And, and I watched one of these Cajun guys, he was afraid he was going to get sick. And so he, he got some rope, he put on the slicker, he went on the back deck in this driving rain, waves crashing over the deck, tied himself off so he wouldn't be in there with the awful smell and stuff that was happening. It was just awful. I've got a cast, I've got a big gut and it's cast iron. So I was in there just kind of laughing under my breath, not wanting one of those guys to kill me as they all started getting sick. My roommate from college had gone with me for the first time ever to work offshore and uh, he never returned. I mean, (laughs) you've heard of people getting green in the gills. He was green, purple, red, yellow. He was everything. He wouldn't gone back out there. That's these guys. And they're bounced around like a top in the ocean. They don't know if they're going to survive. They don't know what's going to happen. This storm attacks them. There's a problem at sea. And, you know, you can't help read this account without thinking about Jonah. I mean, when I read through this, I'm thinking about Jonah. I'm thinking, here's Paul walking in obedience in the will of God, but then there's Jonah who walked in disobedience to the will of God. And, And their fate was entirely different. I mean, here's Jonah, who's a prodigal prophet running from God. And you know the story. He, there's a lottery of the gods. They find out Jonah's guilty. Throw him at sea. God sends a big fish. He's, he's swallowed up by this fish. And then he becomes whale barf on the shore. And then he goes and preaches this message. And all of Nineveh repents. So, so there's a contrast. Paul is obedient, trusting God's promise to safely arrive in Rome. Jonah, on the other hand, is running from God. But God always gets his man. Even if you're running, he's going to get you. So why not be obedient from the beginning? I love the story associated with Jonah's little girl who was talking to her teacher. She had done a project on whales. 
And uh, she had talked about at Sunday school, they had learned about Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. And the teacher said, well, uh, that's not possible. This is a school teacher. And she said, a person could not survive in a whale's belly. And she said, well, the story in the Bible tells us that. And the teacher said, well, it's like many other stories in the Bible. It's just a myth. And so the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah myself. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? And the little girl said, then you ask him when you get there. (laughs) I would not advise you kids to do that to your teachers, okay? It's just a story, a made-up story, I'm sure. You know what I draw from this, though? The safest place in the world to be is in the will of God. You see, here's Paul. He's in the midst of a turbulent storm. But the safest place in the world to be is in the will of God. And sometimes we're in the midst of this turbulent storm, but we're following after God, and it seems like life is is hard and it's difficult and circumstances are bad, but the safest place to be is in the midst of the will of God. So we have the start of the journey, then we have the storm at sea, now we have the shipwreck. I mean, this is unfolding like one of these books that I read. So now they're at sea in verse 21. uh, When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in the midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice. Can you imagine? Here's a sailor. I mean, here's a prisoner gathering all the men on deck. And he said, I got something to say. Nah, 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 nah. I told you so. I mean, that's what he's saying. He said, you should have followed my advice. I told you not to do it. And look where we are now. Look at the mess we're in. Look, look, look at the turmoil we're in. It, it, we shouldn't have done this. You should have listened to me. But, verse 22, I urge you to keep up your courage. Because nobody's going to lose their life. We are going to lose a ship, though. For this very night, an angel of God came to me. The God whom I serve, the God to whom I belong. And he stood before for me, And this angel said, don't be afraid, Paul, you will stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you and all those with you. Therefore, keep up your courage. Paul tells him, I believe it'll turn out this way. Paul gathers these pagan sailors, these pagan soldiers, these fellow prisoners, and he says, you don't have to worry, guys. God's got this. You don't have to worry. Things are going to be turbulent. And not only that, we're going to run aground and the ship's going to sink, but we're going to be spared. I'm sorry? What would you just say? You're a prisoner? You just spent two years in prison? That's how your God protected you? And now you expect us to believe that? that an angel came to you and we're all going to survive just because your God who now has you in the midst of a storm with us and you've been in prison for two years and now we're supposed to believe that? They didn't. They didn't. In the next few verses, there's a ploy of the sailors. What they do is they decide they're going to launch a lifeboat. They're going to save their own skin. And so that, they don't believe a word that Paul is saying. I mean, look at verse 30. And as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship, they had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense to lay out the anchor. So they decided they're going to save their own skin and leave everybody else that's there. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You you can't do that. Until that day, it was about dawn. Verse 33, Paul was encouraging them and said, you need to eat. It's the 14th day, you've been standing watch, you haven't eaten anything. So I encourage you, verse 34, take some food. For this is your preservation, not a hair in your head. 
will perish. And so Paul took the bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And all of them were encouraged, so they took some food. You know, we read that, and we think, really? The wind's howling, the waves are crashing, guys are trying to escape, they're going to save their own skin. Paul just said, you don't have to do that because God's going to spare you. And he says, by the way, you need to eat. I love Paul. I mean, that's what I tell everybody, too. let's eat something. And so he says, you need to eat. You're going to be okay. You need some sustenance. That's got to happen. And not a hair in your head is going to perish. And he said, it's going to be okay. Our God, my God, has this thing for you. <laughs> and they listened. So they were encouraged. They're encouraged. You know, there's a contrast here between the fear-filled sailors and the faith-filled Paul. These sailors are filled with fear. Paul is filled with faith. Sometimes the circumstances and storms of life knock us over. The diagnosis is positive. The papers come in the mail. He wants out. She wants out. The prodigal doesn't come home. The waves of life swamp us. You respond in fear or you respond in faith? Seems to be a lot of fear these days. Max Licato writes these words. We're afraid of being alone, afraid of being unloved, afraid of being abandoned. When we're young, we're afraid of not fitting in. When we enter the workforce, we're afraid we may not get the job, right job, or we can't perform it once we get it. Many are afraid of marriage or fear they cannot be good parents. We look ahead to retirement and we worry if we've got enough money. We fear growing older, not being able to take care of ourselves, or dying suddenly. Some people fear staying. Some people fear moving. Some people fear changing. Some people fear not changing. Some people fear relationships. Some people fear rejection. And we live our lives paralyzed by fear. 366 times, I'm sorry, 336, 366 times in the Bible, God says, don't be afraid. 366 times. Do you think God had an inkling that many of us would live life in fear? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I I like what one author says. The author says, fear fades as our faith grows. Fear fades as our faith grows. Now, fear, it's an unwelcome beast. It comes through the cockpit of our life in so many different ways. So so many different ways. I I remember two and a half years ago now when I was first diagnosed with this horrible disease. And I, I can remember, I wish I could tell you I was never frightened. But I was. I was. Seems like everything was spinning out of control, like I had control anyway before, which was a joke. But all of a sudden, it's like everything's out of control. My feet got knocked out from under me. If you were here, you remember that, like a tsunami. And I wish I could tell you I never walked in fear, but I did. But then we kept pressing into the Lord. My bride kept supporting me. My family kept supporting me. You kept supporting me. And One month turned into two and two into three, and finally after that time, God restored what had been broken and what had been lost. 
But if you're going through a time of fear, hey, I can relate to you. I can relate to you. There's a time, you know, you're getting ready to launch kids off to college. You're getting ready to send a junior higher to high school. You're getting ready to, to have your first baby. You're getting ready to change jobs. You're getting ready to sell a house. You're getting ready to, and you're thinking, this is a fearful time. All I can tell you is to keep pressing into the Lord. Keep pressing in, keep pressing in, keep pressing in. Because as you do that and you enjoy the community of believers and you spend time with believers who support you, who love you, who care for you. All of a sudden, over time, you feel that fear dissipate and that faith increasing in things change. D.L. Moody said, I prayed and prayed and prayed that my faith might increase. Then I read in the Word of God in Romans. It says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. He said, I've been reading the Word of God ever since and my faith has increased exponentially. So if you want your faith to increase, if you want your fear to fade and your faith to grow, you press into the Lord, you press into his word, you enjoy the community of believers, and you watch it happen. Safety is not the absence of danger. It's the presence of God. It's not the absence of danger. Paul's in dangerous circumstances. But he says, hey, we just need to sit down and eat something. <laughs> Relax, guys. My God's got this. And so in the midst of this, he depends upon the promises of the God, of God. The ploy of the soldiers doesn't work. They come back. He gives them practical encouragement. And then we see is the protection of God. Protection of God. It says when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat in the sea. And then they didn't recognize the land and they cast other things off. And then look at verse 41, striking a reef where the two seas meet. We ran aground, the prow struck fast, it remained immovable, the ship began to break up, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners so they couldn't escape, but the centurion, here's another pagan saving Paul, he commands everybody that could swim to jump overboard, get to the land, and the rest should follow, some on planks, others on various things. Then I like Luke's nonchalant way. And thus it happened, they all were brought safely to land. You, you know in that sentence what it says? I, I mean, they are overwhelmed by a storm. The ship is breaking up. They, they jump in the ocean for their lives. Uh, they grab hold of anything they can so they can get to shore. And, and then they start counting. And, and, you know, they get to about 200. And there they've got to gather people. They're, they're spread out along the shore. We've got 200. Where, where are the rest of the guys? They begin calling them in. They begin crawling in. And we're at 250 and then 260 and 261 and 265. And, and finally, 276. And they recognize, we're all here. Every one of us. We're safe. We're sound. Paul's God has done the job he said he would do. And you can imagine the high fives and all the screaming that went on because every single one of them was safe. It's a miracle a miracle. All those books I read, uh, only, only Shackleton's group was the only one where everyone was spared. That's the only one. That's it. It's a miracle. So what do you do with this passage? What is this passage about? I believe this is a passage on the providence of God. That the providence of God trumps the plans of man. The doctrine of God's providence is that God is in complete control of all things. See, in our world today, it's the direct opposite. In our world today, the universe is supposedly came together by chance or by fate, and it's governed by chance or fate. And I'm saying the exact opposite. I'm saying a passage like this teaches us that our God is in control. 
Now, here's the harsh reality. Many of you are living your lives like your God is not in control. You're living your life in fear, and you're paralyzed. The reality of it is he's providential over everything. He's providential over the universe. He's providential over our physical world. He's providential over the affairs of nations. He's providential over the universe. In Psalm 105, it says this, uh, 103.19, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. He's sovereign over the universe. His plan will come about. He's sovereign over our physical world. He causes the sun to rise. Go ahead. Uh, The next one, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's He's providentially in charge of the universe, providentially in charge and sovereign over our physical world. He is providential and sovereign over the affairs of nations. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he wishes. And some of you say, man, Gary, I wish he'd do a better job with our kingdom. It seems like the tail's wagging the dog nail between everything with homosexuality, same-sex marriage, ice, and all the murders taking place in our land. It's like our culture's gone to hell in a handbasket. And it is. Read the end of the book. It's not going to get better. So what do you do with that? Do you walk around like Chicken Little screaming, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling? Or do you recognize this is the greatest time in the history of the church for the light of Jesus to shine through the people of Jesus in a dark and dying world? See, I'm going to choose that. Rather than walking around in fear and anxiety, Talking about what the world's coming to. And it is bad. I'm not belittling that. But if you want to stand out and be different, you talk about the difference that Jesus makes in a world. You talk about a God who can control the world. You talk about the hope that is in him in the midst of desperate times. Because people are looking for answers and solutions that the world cannot give, but Jesus can. And when you press into him, you hope in him. There's life in him. Somebody say, well, I don't like the way he's doing things right now. Well, I'm glad he doesn't say, I'll move off the throne and I'll let you rule for a while. But let's face it, many of us feel that way sometimes. There's a farmer and his son who had finished a hard day's work or a hard morning's work. They stopped for lunch. They were relaxing under a pecan tree. And uh, the father told the son, he says, how strange it is that God puts, they're looking at a pumpkin patch that they've been working in. How strange it is that God puts such big, heavy pumpkins on frail vines that have so little strength they have to trail on the ground. Then he looked up at the branches of the pecan tree above, and how strange it is that God puts small pecans on such a big tree with branches so strong they could hold up many men. Just then a breeze came, dislodged the pecan, and it landed on the farmer's head. His son said, it's a good thing there wasn't a pumpkin up there, right, Dad? You see, when we think we want to be in charge, what we need to recognize is our God is good all the time. And regardless of the circumstances in our lives and the circumstances around us, he can be trusted. He's a good God, I tell you. And the result of that is we don't have to live in fear. We can walk by faith because of who he is. Amen? We're past time. Be dismissed. Go home. Have lunch, as Paul says and be ready for the storm. Adios.